us there. Uh, we have um, looked at verses 1 and 2, so we'll pick up at verse 3 tonight. But before we get there, I just want to remind you of what I know we're familiar with in our culture. It's the English word uh, sequel. Uh, we know what that means. A sequel might apply to a book or it might apply to uh, a movie, uh, a play. Uh, it is the continuation of a particular story that's already been told. We've also become familiar with another term similar to sequel, but it's the prequel. It seems that more and more prequels are coming out uh, now. That's a, a book or a movie or a, a play or something that goes back in time to give some of the story that took place before the original book or the movie uh, came out. And I guess you could say that the part of John's vision that we're looking at in Revelation 12 is a prequel of sorts. John is going back in time to give us the, the main characters that are involved in uh, this stage of the tribulation and to give us some of the storyline from the past that sets the stage for the continuing description of the future tribulation. Again, that seven-year period that will occur uh, before the Lord's second coming to the earth when he actually sets foot on the earth. John goes forward in some, some of the time as well. It's a little bit of a, of a mix. So we should say in this section we're in, he kind of goes back and forth in this discussion of, of the main characters of this part of the book of Revelation. Now we looked last time in verses 1 and 2 at one of these important characters referred to as the woman. I'll read verse 1 again, Revelation 12, a great sign appeared in heaven. Again, this is a, a bit of a parenthesis, almost like a pause. If you look back at the previous chapter, the, 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 the uh, seventh trumpet is sounded, getting ready for the final pouring out of some judgments. But, but now there's something else that confronts John, this great sign. It's in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. And as we noted last time, I won't reteach all of that, but that's referring not to a literal woman, but she is symbolic of the nation of Israel. Israel is a key player in God's redemptive plan, always has been a key player in the past, and still to come a key player in the future. Now, this woman was pictured in verse 2 as being in agonizing labor pains. Verse 2 says, and she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. And that's just capturing her history, the Old Testament history of the suffering and the persecution and the attack that Israel had to endure. Well, tonight in verse 3 and following, the Apostle John introduces the ultimate cause of the woman's suffering, and it is the second main character in this section that we're studying, the dragon, the dragon. Now, we'll see that the dragon is also a sign. It's the second sign that we come to in this chapter. And as we noted last week, the idea of a sign is something that symbol, symbolizes a a spiritual reality. So it's not literal, but it symbolizes something. In this case, the dragon represents Satan. And that's confirmed if you look down even to verse 9. 
which we won't get to tonight. We will next time. We'll complete chapter 12 next time, if the Lord wills. You know, you're supposed to say that, you know, according to the book of James, no matter what you talk about in the future. At least be thinking it, if the Lord wills. We're going to go to Trader Joe's afterwards tonight, if the Lord wills. We do that every Wednesday night, just so you'll know. I love going there. Even if we don't need anything, I like going there. Verse 9 says, And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan. So that confirms the spiritual reality that this figure, this dragon, represents. So there's an integral connection now between these first two characters. The fact that they're listed so close together and each called a sign. They're connected, the woman and the dragon. So let's walk through the account of this character, a ferocious character, and his connection to the woman. Verse 3. Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon. Notice how John calls attention to the description of this second sign. He, he beckons us to take a look at, with that phrase, and behold. It's as if John is saying, look at this sign. It, it is something to behold. And the reason is that this new character is the woman's mortal enemy. As we also reviewed last time, Satan is an evil, wicked, fallen angel, formerly known as Lucifer when he was an exalted angel in heaven. But this fallen angel, Satan, is referred to here as a dragon, and it's only in the book of Revelation that Satan is referred to with this figure, the dragon. Elsewhere, he's referred to in other ways, and certainly one of the ones that we're familiar with is uh, the fact that he's called a serpent in Scripture. That goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. Genesis 3, verse 1, that beginning of, of the fall of man there, chapter 3. This is how chapter 3 begins in verse 1 of Genesis. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. So this is a, a creature called a serpent that Satan used, even in the New Testament, he's referred to that way, 2 Corinthians 11 verse 3, Paul looks back at that scene and talks about the serpent who deceived Eve by his craftiness. And the reason Satan is called by that name, the serpent, is because that's the animal, the creature that Satan chose to use in the Garden of Eden when he tempted Adam and Eve. It was originally some sort of reptile. I mean, all the paintings that you see, you know, trying to depict the fall of this big, you know, snake in the, in the tree and talking to Eve. It was not in that form yet. It was in the form of some sort of rep reptile that was likely originally upright, standing on two legs perhaps. But we know it was cursed by God. That's Genesis 3, verse 14. Cursed to either, either walk on four legs close to the ground or, or to slither like a, like a snake. Genesis 3, verse 14. And Yahweh, God, said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than any, uh, every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. From, so from that point on, this reptile took a different form. We're familiar with that, the serpent. So why is Satan symbolized here in the book of 
Revelation as a dragon in John's vision instead of a serpent? Well, because of the point being made about Satan here and his connection to the woman, that he is the enemy of the woman, the enemy of her suffering, the woman being the nation of Israel. The dragon's appropriate to make that point, right? I mean, what do we think of when we visualize dragons, fierceness? That's what John saw in this vision, a ferocious monster. And it is this picture of Satan that we will find numerous times in Revelation, only in Revelation, but it's in chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 16, chapter 20. I'll only read just that last one, maybe, Revelation 20, verse 2. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Of course, we'll look more at that when we get to Revelation 20. Now, we are obviously studying a text in the New Testament here, in the book of Revelation, that is New Testament. Therefore, it's written in Greek. And the Greek term for dragon is drakon. Drakon, D-R-A-K-O-N, drakon is how you would spell that in English letters. But there is a Hebrew term in the Old Testament, also translated dragon. Find it several places. Here's one, Isaiah 27, verse 1, saying something about the, the monster Leviathan. Isaiah 27, verse 1, in that day, the Lord will punish Leviathan. He will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. That's the Hebrew term. Greek is drakon. The Hebrew term is tanin. It looks like tanin, T-A-N-N-I-N, tanin. Interestingly, that same word tanin is translated elsewhere as monster or sea monster. Just a couple of references there. Genesis 1.21, it says God created. This is in the story of the creation, the account of the creation, six literal days. God created the great sea monsters, the great tanin, and every living creature that moves. Jeremiah 51, verse 34. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has devoured me. He, referring to him, he swallowed me like a monster, like a tanin. So drakon is a is a good symbol for Satan. It carries over that, that tanin sort of idea, especially when you view him in relationship to the woman, the nation of Israel. He is that nation's mortal enemy. He is the great monster to her, the great dragon. Now, our verse does use that word great. We saw that uh, earlier in verse 1. It's the same Greek term, megas, and I told you there it can mean something uh, large in the sense of significant or large in the sense of, of size. And maybe both of those apply here. This is a, a large monster, a large significant monster in this vision. And not only that, but he has coloring, noticeable coloring. It says he's red. That's the Greek term pyros, P-Y-R-O-S. We get uh, some English words from that like uh, pyromaniac. I had two sons who were pyromaniacs. They were growing up. I was one when I was a young kid as well. Something about fire and boys. It just goes together. And sharp things. All those go together. It occurs elsewhere in the New Testament. 
but uh, only one place. We saw it in Revelation chapter 6, verse 4 in the New Testament. It referred to one of the horses. And it said another horse, a red horse, a paros horse went out. So here it is again. It can mean red like a flame. It can mean red like blood. And really both apply here to this figure of the dragon. This monster was this, this color of a, of a fiery kind of destruction and the color of bloodshed. Both. Therefore, this color red emphasizes just how fierce the nature of this dragon is to Israel. How cruel, how destructive is Satan is to Israel. In particular, this dragon wants to murder the offspring of the woman, which fits with the words of Jesus, John 8, 44. The devil, Satan, was what from the beginning? A murderer. That's his nature. We'll see that in a moment. The dragon is further described here, though. Look what it says. Having seven heads and ten horns... And on his heads were seven diadems, that's a type of crown. Now granted, the description here gets a little more complicated even than trying to understand the image of a, of a fierce monster that's colored in a ferocious color. That's easier in some ways. But first, notice that there's two mentions of the number seven. Seven heads, and at the end of that says seven diadems. Those two mention, mentionings go together. The dragon is pictured as having seven heads, and there's a a diadem on each one, you see, so they match. And this is the symbolism of royalty and authority. Now, the diadem was something they understood in their culture. The diadem was actually a, a blue band that had white markings on it, and Persian kings especially would would add that kind of blue and white marked band to their crowns as a symbol of their royal power and their authority. That's diadem. There's another Greek term, uh, stephanos. That's a different term we find in Scripture. It also means crown, but it's more the kind of crown that they would give to the victor uh, of an athletic uh, event or something like that, or a crown that that represented a, 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 a feast of celebration that they might wear. This is different than that. Here it's making the point about authority, and, and even the more specific point is in this description, it's the idea of how the dragon works. He works through official authority. He works through world empires. Always has, still does. So more specifically, this represents the dominating world empires. And the number seven is important the world empires in the, fa- in the past, first of all, that we've, we read about in history that consecutively ran their course all under Satan's dominion. He used them, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, uh, the Medo-Persian Empire, Greece, and then Rome, all under Satan's control. At six, there's a seventh one coming. That we'll see in chapter 17. That's Antichrist's future empire. So what a sight. Not just a large, fierce, red monster, but a large, fierce, red, seven-headed monster that is pictured as ruling the world. Now God is sovereign over that. 
He has sovereignly allowed Satan to do that. He's allowed Satan to rule the world since the fall and will continue to allow that until the final judgments are poured out. Something else about this vision, though, there was something else said there. This dragon was seen by John to have ten horns. Ten horns. The description, the way it's worded, doesn't say the location on the dragon of the ten horns. There's seven heads and seven crowns, but somehow there's ten horns there too. We do know that the final kingdom ruled by Antichrist will be a ten-nation confederacy. Now, here's some important cross-references to that. I'm just going to read them and give them to you. If you want to follow along, go back to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. It made me think of something I said to the church this, this week in Arizona. They have a long hallway in their lobby, and on the wall is the entire book of the Bible written out from Genesis all the way to Revelation in large silver metal plates, kind of like what our missionary photos are stuck to out there, big rectangular things like that with the scripture engraved into it. The entire Bible, all the way down, Genesis, Revelation. It's amazing. And so I preached Sunday night on, on from Second Chronicles 20, and so I looked it up on the wall where it was. So when I told him to turn to Second Chronicles 20, I said, you could also look at panel number 10. There's eight there were uh, eight columns per panel. I said it's the sixth column from the left on panel 10 if you're standing in the lobby somewhere. I've never said that before anywhere at one church. They told me no one else has ever said it there either. So, <laughs> Daniel chapter 7. I'm going to start reading at verse 7. After this, I kept looking in the night visions. These are the famous visions, important prophecy, prophetic visions that Daniel got. And behold, a fourth beast, and I'm not going to go through all the details of this, just just read with me. And behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth that devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder of its feet, with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. This is referring in Revelation, this is the same thing. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little horn, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. Jump down to verse 23. Thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth. So we know we're talking about political entities, kingdoms which will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise. That's what the ten horns refer to. A a ten-nation grouping, a confederacy, and another will arise after them and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one. At the end of it, it says there, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. That's three and a half years, the second half of the, of the seven-year tribulation. Now jump back to Revelation. Look at chapter 13. Go ahead to verse 1. You see this terminology continue. 
Revelation 13.1, and the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems, diadems on his heads were blasphemous names. Jump all the way to Revelation 17. See how this comes up again. Here's Revelation 17, verses 9 and 10, and then I'll read verse 12. So 9 and 10, and then 12. Here's the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits, and they are seven kings. Five have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must remain a little while. Jump to verse 12. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. We'll explain more about that when we get there, but you get the point. These ten horns are political in nature. They represent the rulers, the kings, who will rule under Antichrist. So in chapter 17, we'll investigate that more. But for now, just kind of keep it at the 40,000-foot level. These references point to a future world empire. And in 13.1, we saw that the beast will appear... And the beast is going to be the agent through whom this dragon lies in wait. Again, but for the woman's offspring. And the shifting of the diadems from the heads of the dragon in chapter 12 to the horns of the beast in 13.1, there's going to be this transfer of power from what we're seeing here to this ten-king confederacy. But anyway, the bigger point for now is just the hatred of this dragon for this woman, Israel. Look at verse 17 of chapter 12, and that's as good a summary as you'll find of that hatred. The chapter is going to conclude with it. 12:17. so the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. There is no way to overemphasize the extreme hatred that Satan has for God and the extreme hatred that Satan has for God's chosen people, Israel. Now, as we've already seen, this evil nature of Satan was first manifested in heaven. And so this is what John's vision goes back to now in verse 4. I said there's a, there's a back and forth nature to this. There's some future things, but there's also prequel being given to us. Here's some prequel. Verse 4, and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to earth. The stars of heaven refer to angels who fell with Satan in history past. Look down at verses 7 and 9, and that confirms it for us there. We find the references to the dragon's angels. And just so you'll know, we've already seen star used to represent an angel. That's back in chapter 9, verse 1. It says there that the fifth angel sounded and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. In fact, all the way back to Job chapter 38 verse 7, it talks about the angels that way. The morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So here, it's that kind of symbolism. It's an angel. So our verse is a reference to the fact that when Satan fell from heaven, we discussed this last time. You see it in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. When he fell, he took not just some angels with him, fallen angels now, demons. He took a third of the angels with him. 
How many was that? Well, good question. We don't know. The exact number of angels who joined Satan in his rebellion is never revealed, but we can conclude one thing. It was a very large number. Just look back at chapter 5, verse 11 for a moment. Remember that scene in, in heaven? You know, John's taken up in his vision to heaven, and uh, he, he sees the, the throne there and all those around the, th- the throne exalting the Lamb. Look at verse 11 of Revelation 5. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elder, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. You might remember that we not only said it was an uncountable number, but when we studied that, the, the term in Greek for, for myriad, that, that was the highest number in their language. That's the highest number that, that the Greeks could express just in a word, though it doesn't refer to an exact number. So we can conclude it's, it, it's almost larger than we can imagine because it's larger than we can imagine that the angels that were around the throne praising God that John saw. These are angels that fell. It's interesting that in chapter 9, verse 16, one little number is given to us. The number of the armies, these demons of the horsemen, were 200 million. That's just part of them. So we are talking about a large number. There were more than 200 million. So a third of some large number of angels fell, and they were cast from heaven with their leader, their general, Satan, Lucifer, who became Satan. This indicates the control he had over them, the authority he had on them, the fact that he could persuade a third of the stars, a third of the angels to go with him. They were cast out, and it says, to the earth. You know what that means? There are millions and millions who are free currently even to roam the earth and the heavenly realm. Just as a side note, remember what what Paul said in Ephesians 6, verse 12? Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's what he's referring to there. They're the enemy of God's people still today in the church age, roaming, doing Satan's bidding. So back to our, our passage, it is this large group of fallen angels along with then evil men that are under Satan's control that assist Satan as on earth. For centuries, he has taken out his animosity against God and against God's people, in particular, the nation of Israel, and he's been doing it for a long time. And that's what we see again in verse 4. And the dragon stood before the woman, Israel, who was about to give birth, knew it was coming, so that when she gave birth, he might devour the child. Satan opposing Israel for centuries, waiting, waiting, waiting for his greatest opportunity of the one that would come through Israel. Now, again, we touched on this last time, but it's so important in our understanding of, of the biblical storyline. Let's review it again. Throughout history, 
Satan has directed hateful efforts toward persecuting the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, the one through whom Messiah would come, the one by whom the the good news of, of who God is and the good news of forgiveness was supposed to be proclaimed. The dragon's evil intentions toward this woman has been evidenced throughout many events in Old Testament history. Here's just a few in review. You've got to understand, Satan's behind all these things. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 4, after the fall, the first murder. Cain killed his brother Abel. Abel was a righteous, obedient man. Who's, who stirs up that? Who's behind that? Satan. Genesis 4, Cain rose up against Abel. The Apostle John, the same author here, he comments on that murder in his first epistle, 1 John 3, verse 12. And he asks the question, for what reason did, did, did he slay him? Did Cain kill Abel? John answers it, because his, Cain's, deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. There's, there's light and dark right there. The two forces. Satan stirs up that murder. You go forward in biblical history, Genesis 12, Genesis 20, you find these attempted rapes of Sarah, Satan's behind that. Genesis chapter 26, also of Rebekah, Satan's behind that. Genesis 27, when Rebekah influences uh, Esau to cheat his brother out of his birthright, who's behind that? It's not just human beings and jealousy. I mean, that comes to play, but there's a force behind that. There's, there, there's, there's opposition to God's redemptive plan behind all that. Go to the Exodus, Exodus chapter 1, and the Israelites becoming slaves in Egypt. Who's behind Pharaoh? Satan. Then Moses is born, Exodus 1 and Exodus 2. And what did Satan stir up Pharaoh to do? Kill all the baby boys, all the male children in Egypt. That's going to include the potential death of Moses. I mean, what was going on there? Well, Pharaoh looks at the number of them and he's getting concerned. So these Israelites might be a threat to his power, but he's just an operative of Satan. That's what's going on. Trying to wipe out people from whom Messiah would come. God allowing it all to happen. God using that means allowing it, but in using human means to protect Moses. We know that story, the courage of the Hebrew midwives. God would use Moses to deliver Egypt. That thwarts Satan's schemes, but Satan doesn't stop. Go through all the period of the judges in the Old Testament. You see all these pagan nations attempting to destroy Israel. God raising up judges to rescue them. Saul attempting to murder David. Who's behind all that? It's not just human jealousy. This is Satan's opposition to the Messianic line. 1 Samuel 18. The kingdoms divided, the northern and southern kingdom, and during those years, do you know the scripture tells us a couple of times that the Messianic line got down to just basically one child left? 2 Chronicles 21.17. No son left except... Jehoahaz, the youngest of the king's sons there, only one left. Satan came pretty close. Second Chronicles 22, there was this queen, Athaliah, her attempt to destroy the royal seed. Happened again. 
But the daughter of King Jehoram hid this young child from Athaliah so that she would not put him to death. I mean, it gets down that close. Doesn't wipe him out. You have the book of Esther, the genocide that you find there of Haman attempting to kill the nation, the people in the nation, the Jewish people. Satan's behind all that, stirring that up. Do you know that there are times where even the Israelites began to even murder their own children for sacrificial purposes to pagan gods? Leviticus 18, 2 Kings 16, 2 Chronicles 28, Ezekiel 16. Satan stirring up even the, even the Jews to kill their own children. There's a summary of that in Psalm 106, verses 37 and 38. Listen to this. They even sacrificed their own sons and their daughters to the demons and shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. That's hard to imagine. But again, you have to understand the hatred of the dragon, Satan, of Israel. And regardless of all those attempts and more of Satan's uh, desire to thwart God's redemptive plan, waiting, the nation waiting, Messiah to come, the woman did give birth. The Son of God was born into the world. That's what we find in our verse, the dragon looking to devour the child of the woman. So look how he's pictured. He's pictured as if he's standing before her, waiting for the birth to take place. All those years, all those centuries, waiting, waiting, watching. In fact, the verb stood looks past tense to us, but it's actually in a present tense form. It pictures him of of constantly his efforts to oppose this woman all through the Old Testament years. And yet he was never able to pull it off, to stop Christ from coming to earth, to begin his redemptive mission. So the text in the next section now focuses on the fact that Christ was truly born. Look at verse 5. So in spite of all Satan's hatred, she gave birth to a son, a male child. So that male child phrase clearly is a reference to Jesus, the Messiah who came to earth through Israel. Jesus, Jesus was a Jew. He was a, a descendant of Abraham. He was a descendant of David. You get that in the genealogy even in one verse, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He was a member of the tribe of Judah. Genesis 49, verse 10, prophesied that the scepter, the rule, would be a part of Judah and would never depart from Judah. In Micah 5, verse 2, we hear this at Christmas time a lot about the little town of Bethlehem that was this insignificant village, but part of the clans of Judah. And the prophecy is, from you one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. Prophecy of the Messiah. Revelation 5, we saw it back there in the scene around the throne. Revelation 5, 5 says, Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. So here's the male child, child that Satan was waiting for, the dragon. And Jesus' birth through the woman Israel happened despite all of Satan's efforts. So Satan having failed to wipe out God's people, having failed to stop the birth of the male child, once the male child is born, where does he turn his attention there? Then, well, then Jesus, to Jesus himself. To stop Jesus from completing his redemptive 
mission. Think about how Satan stirred up attacks now in the New Testament era through Herod to kill again the babies. Matthew 2 didn't happen. Once Jesus began his earthly ministry, what happened in Matthew chapter 4? What did Satan do? Tempted Jesus in the wilderness, trying to destroy his redemptive mission, the wilderness temptations. Later on, he stirred up the people of Nazareth to try to kill Jesus in Luke chapter 4. We've seen it in the Gospel of John that along the way, Satan stirring up the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, to try to arrest Jesus. John chapter 4, John chapter 8, and that little phrase occurs over and over, but it wasn't his hour yet. Thwarted again. He's not giving up. What was his most direct attempt? The crucifixion of Christ. Of course, we know that seeming victory by Satan was in reality Satan's ultimate defeat. The point is that all of these typify this ongoing attempt of the dragon to devour the woman and then the woman's child which he was born. Look what else it says about this male child, the Messiah. He's also a king. Now this is a bit of a a glimpse ahead now to the end. Verse 5, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Not only could Satan not stop the birth, he will not be able to stop, he did not stop the earthly redemptive mission. He's not able to stop anything today, but he was not able to hinder Christ's coronation as the king of kings. The crucifixion didn't do it because God raised him from the dead. And then he ascended. He's destined to rule, it says, all nations with a rod of iron. That's a specific reference to what's coming in the earthly millennial kingdom, chapter 20. But we've seen this phrase before. Look back at chapter 2. I'll read it for you, verses 26 and 27, Revelation 2, 26 and 27. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end... To him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. Look ahead to Revelation 19, verse 15. Revelation 19, 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. I mean, not only did Satan not stop Jesus, Jesus is the king of kings who will both destroy and then rule over nations. Just so you'll know, those words come from Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is one of our messianic psalms. It it speaks to something that was going on at the time, but it has this prophetic element looking ahead as well. Listen to Psalm 2, verses 8 and 9. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. Talking to the Son, and the very ends of the earth as your possessions. Speaking to the Son. You shall break them with a rod of iron. That rod of iron means an iron scepter. It's, a, it, it's something that cannot be broken. It cannot be resisted. And so verse 9 of Psalm 2 says, You shall shatter them like earthenware. So this phrase, rod of iron here, speaks of the, of the absolute victory and power and decisiveness of Christ's rule as king of kings. 
And when he comes back, he's going to swiftly and immediately judge all sin in the nations. He's going to put down any rebellion. He'll defeat all nations. And then he is going to continue to have dominion over the, over the nations that arise in the millennial kingdom. More on that later. So back to verse 5 again. That was a vision jumping ahead a little bit. Ruling over the nations. Now jumps back in time to the conclusion of Jesus' earthly life. And her child was called up to God and to his throne. The woman brought forth the male child. Satan opposed him. But there came a point where he was inaccessible to the dragon. No more opportunity to oppose Jesus while he was here fulfilling his earthly mission. And the reason was, it says he was caught up to God. And that verb caught up is a translation of a Greek term that means to snatch away. It's used other places. In Acts, it's used... Remember that scene of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch? And uh, Philip witnessing to that eunuch who was reading from the Old Testament scriptures, didn't understand. God takes Philip there miraculously, explains the scripture... The man wanted to be baptized. Philip baptized him. Here's what it says, what happened right after that. Acts 8, 39. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched away Philip. It's the same Greek term. Caught him up. And the eunuch no longer saw him. But he said, oh, well. And he says he didn't say that part, but he went on his way rejoicing. He does say that. She is there. You know where else it's used? Caught up, snatched up. 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. This is the term used of the church, of what the church will experience. It says, at the coming of Christ in the air. I earlier emphasized on on purpose, the second coming is Christ coming to earth. There's something else about Christ coming in the air. 1 Thessalonians 4.17, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Many of you keep waiting for us to comment on that more, but we're not going to do it yet. The rapture. One more place it's used. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 4, that vision that Paul had where he said he was caught up into the, to the third heaven, you know? Same word. I, he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. Back to our verse. Here it's used to refer to what happened after the events of Christ's life, his crucifixion, and then his resurrection. This is a reference to his exaltation at his ascension. And we know that. Acts 5 talks about that. They, they witnessed, they preached about it, that yes, you put him to death, hang him on the cross. Acts 5, 30, but 31 says, he is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior. That's ascended to heaven at the right hand of majesty on high. Romans 8, 34, Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, who rather was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. One more, Hebrews 1, verse 3, when he had made purification of sins, and all that was done, 
He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So the destination of the snatching away is the heavenly throne of God. And it was this exaltation to the supreme status that confirmed that the Father accepted everything that the Son did. His perfect life, his preaching, his teaching, his death. He accepted all that. The work of redemption confirmed that. You know what else it confirmed? That Satan couldn't stop Christ anymore from doing that. He couldn't stop Christ after all those centuries, could not stop Christ from accomplishing his redemptive mission. So what does Satan do? Retire? Start drawing his social security? No. He had no further access to him, so he just redirected his animosity again toward God's people here. Even in the church age. But you know who else he's been opposing during all these centuries since Christ ascended? Still hating Israel. That's still going on today. The reason that there are nations that hate Israel is because Satan hates Israel. Major example of that, many in history. I mean, what's what's the most historic and unforgettable example of that, that genocidal massacre of Jews in Europe during World War II, the Holocaust. Satan was behind all that. He instigated it. Still not giving up. And during the future tribulation, Satan is still not going to give up. He is going to actually increase his efforts to destroy the Jewish people so that the nation cannot be saved as the Bible promises in Zechariah and Romans... He doesn't want any of them to survive and enter the millennial kingdom, and he's going to still seek to kill Jews, especially believing Jews. So just as we've seen throughout history, even in the tribulation, Israel is going to be his main target. That woman, and that woman, Israel, is going to seek to escape in the second half of the tribulation. Now we jump back to the future, back forward to the future. Verse 6, then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. You can do the math. That's approximately three and a half years. This is just a brief glimpse of what's going to be described more fully even in the rest of the chapter. God is going to keep frustrating Satan's attempt to destroy Israel just as he has done all the way through history. We'll do it in the tribulation as well. And this is a primary way he's going to do it in the tribulation. He's going to hide them. Did you know that's something Jesus predicted? He spoke in Matthew 24, I'll read it, 15 through 21. He spoke of Jewish oppression and a flight by the Jews during the period after the abomination of desolation, which happens at the midpoint of the tribulation. Listen to Matthew 24, 15 and following. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand this. 
Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Verse 19. Woe to those who are pregnant, to those who are nursing babies in those days. Pray that your flight will not be in the winter or a Sabbath, for then there will be a great tribulation. This is the second half of the tribulation, great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will, unless those days have been cut short, no life would be saved. For the sake of the elect, those days will end. This is what our verse refers to here that I just read, Revelation 12, 6. The woman, Israel, will flee. And we'll say more about that, I think, later. But for now, notice a couple of details that are given to us. Again, Antichrist's desecration of the temple halfway through the tribulation is going to send Jewish people fleeing, it says, into the wilderness. The vision does not specify exactly where that is. It's a special location. It's likely somewhere east of the Jordan River, on that side of the Jordan River that kind of runs north and south there, you know, in the Holy Land. South of the Dead Sea, east and south, somewhere over there. It's a territory that's a a picture of desolation, but it's a place that God has prepared for them to flee to, place of liberation, place of safety for the woman. Regardless where it is, that's not the main point. Our verse says it's prepared by God, and He will nourish them. Verses 14 and 16 even add the thought that He'll protect them. He'll protect and nourish them in the wilderness. Does that sound like anything that's ever happened in their history before? The wilderness wanderings are a good little picture, a big picture of that. Finally, our verse mentions how long it'll go on, 1,260 days. So at the midpoint of the tribulation, there's about 1,260 days left. So this corresponds to the great tribulation, the second half. This will be also while what's going on at the same time as what we studied in chapter 11. The two witnesses are serving in Jerusalem. This fits the picture that the first half of the tribulation will be different for Israel. There's going to be a, a relative tranquility, lulled to sleep, if you will, in the first half. But then it's going to dramatically change. Listen to the prophecy, Daniel 9:27. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, they're going to get lulled to sleep thinking they're on the good side of all of this and a, a covenant's going to be made with them. They're going to, allow it to be allowed to sacrifice and so forth. And it says then he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. And yet, this fierce opposition, despite it all, the woman, Israel, is going to be protected by God. There'll be some who aren't able to escape. They'll have to remain behind in Jerusalem. They're going to come under the influence of those two witnesses. There'll be Jews saved. In fact, the end result is... Romans 11.26 says that they're going to understand finally who Jesus is. They're going to look upon the one when he comes, the one they have pierced, and they're going to understand. Not all Jews in history who died lost are going to be saved, but 
Israel, as it's known there, national Israel, God still has a purpose for them, Romans eleven twenty six, And such a large number of them are going to be saved then at the end of the tribulation and enter the millennial kingdom that it's as if all Israel was saved. So there's a great cosmic war of the ages. I introduced it last time, the longest war. It's been going on between God and Satan. Began with Satan's rebellion in heaven, came to earth eventually. All that he did in his hatred of Israel is going to reach a climax sometime in the future. So next time, some of the same prequel history will be discussed, but we'll also see the angel Michael's role as well. Father, we stand back and try to process all this and a lot of facts and a lot of symbolism, and yet we interpret your scripture consistently as we always seek to do, and and the prophecies start fitting together. They start adding up, and we are amazed at how you have carried out your redemptive plan in the face of all this evil for millennia and that you are still going to complete it in the future. So we thank you for the encouragement that gives us many, many specific details you didn't think we needed to know. So we trust you for that. But we certainly get the big picture of what's to come. So Lord, help us to live in light of the knowledge that you have a plan. It's, our lives are not even about us. This is not all there is. And what goes on in our own little slice of the pie and the years that we have on the, on the timeline, it's so insignificant, really. Even what goes on in our own nation is insignificant at the end of the day because we understand the big picture. We see what's going on. Satan stirring up governments, Satan stirring up individuals, instigating evil things, wickedness in the philosophies, the things taught on the university campuses, and sadly today, the things taught in many churches to deceive people, stirred up by the great murderer, the great liar. So Lord, help us to be aware, help us to take our stand on the truth that you've revealed to us, stand firm in our witness, no matter what comes our way, knowing that we know you and that you win. I pray for anyone here who doesn't have the assurance that they're on the right side, that you bring them to come to confess Jesus as their Savior and their Lord, that they might be forgiven of their sin. In Christ's name, amen. Number one, don't pick up your kids for 11 more minutes. Number two, A15 is the, the cutoff there. Uh, this Sunday is a special Sunday, and um, we're going to not still jump back into John 9 until the following Sunday, John 19. We're at the crucifixion. But this coming Sunday is an annual emphasis that we have on our, our seminary. We're, we're going to call it, we're calling it TES Sunday. And so I'll be preaching a, a sermon appropriate uh, for that from 1 Corinthians. Uh, chapter 4, and um, we'll be uh, making sure you know who our seminary students are. They started class today, and we've got some new students, and it's exciting to see them up there and and all that, and um, 
I have the joy of, of going in November to St. George, Utah to be a part of Jason's ordination. So I'm really looking forward to that. Our church and their church kind of working together to ordain him to the ministry. So uh, we'll give some more reports about him in the days ahead. But this coming Sunday, and it'll be an opportunity when the service close, closes, the ushers will be uh, standing out the door. Uh, this is my way to tell the ushers that, you know, instead of emailing, emailing Tim, <laughs> that uh, the ushers will be standing by the door with offering plates. And so you can give an offering to, to the Expositor Seminary, and it goes to the seminary uh, in, in Jupiter. It's a headquarter there, and it's for all the, the expenses of, of uh, their administration and scholarships they give out and just all kinds of training things they do. Uh, this is our opportunity to take up special offering for them at the conclusion of the service. So you can prepare for that and give to them. All right, enjoy some fellowship with those around you. Meet somebody you don't know, you're dismissed.